Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to do in this audio 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. I've entitled it Old Testament Warnings Against Idolatry and Sexual Immorality. Our context is this, Paul, in the previous chapter, chapter 9, has talked about exercising discipline so as not to make your brother stumble, for example, so as not to participate in idolatry, so as not to beat the air when you're boxing your opponent, so as not to stumble when you run the race. In other words, to fly right. And he's going to continue with that theme here in 1 Corinthians 10 by giving Old Testament examples against two of the big problems the Corinthians had, sexual immorality and idolatry. Because idolatry was everywhere in Corinth, so was sexual immorality. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul starts out this way, Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Now that now, now I want you to know, that could be a logical now, I call it. You know, it's all right now, it's the logical time for me to be talking about this because of what ha- what happened before. And I think that's what it means. The oldest manuscripts have four. Four, I want you to know, brothers. In other words, as a result of what's happened before, before there's a reason because of that, I want you to know, brothers, and I think that's what it means. Then NIV, in fact, translates it as four, and Gill and Clark say the oldest manuscripts read four. So Paul is saying here, there's a reason I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. As John Gill and Adam Clark say, this four shows the connection with the previous chapter. You exercise your right in the gospel by taking money, as Paul mentioned in chapter nine, by eating idle meat, as he talked about in chapter eight. You could end up being disqualified for the race. Let's read the last couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Therefore, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is very concerned to keep the gospel witness pure. He doesn't want people stumbling, either believers or non-believers. He doesn't want hindrances to the gospel. He wants people to believe. So when he says, I want you to know, brothers, what he's getting getting ready to tell them is about the Israelites as their object lesson. Despite all the spiritual privileges they had, the results were not good. Here's some examples of bad results that the Israelites found themselves in. They fell into lust, fornication, and intemperance, and idolatry, as John Gill says. Their carcasses fell into the wilderness without entering into rest. That was bad business. And the Corinthians were in the same position as the Israelites. They had been given the oracles of God, and then they started living like hell, just like the Israelites did. Adam Clark says it seems that Corinthians thought that the Corinthians thought that, that being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper was enough. It was enough to cover the sins of eating at idle feast and causing their brothers to stumble and so forth. And Paul's getting ready to say, no, that's not true. He mentions all under the cloud. The fathers were all under the cloud. Now that's a little word we pass by very quickly, but Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that that word should be emphasized even though they all had blessings, most of them fell. We go to verse 5, it'll say most of them fell. Even though they all had the blessings, almost all of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, didn't make it. That could happen to you too, Corinthians. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation, but it means they're going to get disqualified for winning the race, and they're going to hinder the gospel. Now, Paul says here in verse 1 that all that our fathers were all under the cloud. What cloud is he talking about? He's talking about the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory that followed them, that led them, pillar of fire, well, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's the Shekinah glory. That stands for God himself. And they were under the cloud. That means they were under God's leadership and they were under God's protection. NIV Study Bible emphasizes the leadership of the cloud. 
because they followed it. And John Gill emphasizes the protection of a cloud because a cloud shields from the sun during the day and, a cl and clouds provide water for the Israelites and their cattle, as Adam Clark says. And also the fire protected from wild beasts at night because beast lions and such are not going to attack anywhere with this big column of fire around. And so Paul says, look, you had all that protection, all that guidance. They, they had all that, just like you've got all the privileges of the gospel, and now you're about to blow it, just like they blew it. So be careful. Let's look at this pillar of cloud idea in the Old Testament, Exodus 13, 21 through 22. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, and then a pillar of fire to give them light at night so they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Numbers 9, 15, and 23. On the first day, the tabernacle will set up the cloud cover of the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and it appeared like fire above the tabernacle from evening until morning. It remained that way continuously. The cloud would cover it, appearing like fire at night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up above the tent, the Israelites would set out. At the place where the cloud stopped there, the Israelites camped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out. At the Lord's command, they camped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they camped. Even when the cloud stayed over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites carried out the Lord's requirement and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud remained over the tabernacle for only a few days. They would camp at the Lord's command and set out at the Lord's command. Sometimes the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it remained a day and a night, they moved out when the cloud lifted. Whether it was two days, a month, or longer, the Israelites camped and did not set out as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. But when it was lifted, they set out. Numbers 14, 14. They have heard that you, Lord, are among the people, how you, Lord, are seen face to face, how your cloud stands over them, and how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Deuteronomy 1.33 Who went before you on the journey to seek out a place for you to camp? He went in the fire by night and in the cloud by day to guide you on the road you were to travel. Psalm 78.14 He led them with a cloud by day and with a fiery light throughout the night. So you see how prominent this idea of the Shekinah glory of God is in the Old Testament. So Paul appeals to that. Of course, there are probably Gentile Christians there in Corinth who didn't know this story as well as Paul did, but they were Jews there too. But he's using Jewish examples, which goes to show that we Gentiles can use Jewish examples to our benefit. All we have to do is study a little bit of Old Testament history. It's very interesting, actually. It's, fa it's fascinating uh, history, as well as theology and, and devotional applications and all that. Verse 2, Paul continues, and all, there's that all again, all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does baptized into Moses mean? Well, they went through the water at the beginning of their spiritual journey. Just like we go through the water at the beginning of our spiritual journey. At the beginning of our exodus from sin, corruption, and death into the light of the gospel. We go through the waters of baptism because we're supposed to be baptized right at the beginning of our conversion if we did it like they did in the book of Acts. So all were baptized in the Moses. They were baptized in the sea, of course, going through the Red Sea. They were also baptized in the cloud. And, of course, baptized means covered over with, submerged into. So they were submerged into that Shekinah glory cloud, just like they were submerged into the Red Sea. Both were symbols. Being submerged in the cloud meant safety and protection. Being submerged into the Red Sea meant the beginning of their spiritual journey and being free from Egypt, free from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. 
Now let's look at more closely at what some of the options are that have been suggested, suggested for that word baptized. First of all, baptized into Moses could show submission to Moses as their leader and deliverer. Even as Christian baptism shows submission to Christ. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea. Think about it. It shows a lot of submission to follow somebody who's about to lead you into a, a river that could drown you. Well, not a river, I'm sorry, a gulf that could drown you. It's not, 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 not nice. But they followed Moses. Likewise, likewise, we're supposed to follow Jesus as he initiates us into our spiritual journey, which would probably be just as exciting as it was for the Israelites. All right, baptized into Moses could show submission to Moses. Baptized into Moses could mean baptized by Moses' means and direction. In other words, we follow Moses, we do what he says. Or baptism could just be used figuratively, passing through the cloud of the Red Sea. is like being baptized because you're covered with water. And in my opinion, that's the best way to take it right there. Being baptized into Moses, says Adam Clark, it could be being baptized into the covenant of which Moses was the mediator. Being initiated, if you will, into the Mosaic covenant. I don't, I think the easiest way to say this is, take it figuratively, they went through the water in the Red Sea, and under the cloud they were covered with the water of the cloud. Going through the Red Sea shows the beginning, the initiation of their spiritual journey, being baptized in the cloud, is covered with the Shekinah glory of God, and you're protected, and you're given a bunch of spiritual benefits. Now what Paul is doing here, he's starting out with all the spiritual favors now, in verses 2 through 4, he's going to talk about and then he's going to say, look, they had all these spiritual favors, and then look what happened in 5 through 10. All kind of disaster hit them as people started getting killed because of their rebellion. That's where he's going with this. We go to verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 10. Paul continues, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Let's emphasize the all again, as Jefferson, Fawcett, and Brown would have us do. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank. But they didn't all make it into the promised land. That's where he's going with that. Now let's deal with this strange expression, spiritual food, or these strange expressions, spiritual food, spiritual drink, and spiritual rock. Because food and drink and rocks are generally thought of to be very physical, not spiritual. Well, all commentators agree that the spiritual food that Paul is referring to here that the Israelites ate was the physical manna, the bread that came from heaven. But even though it came from heaven, it represented its spiritual sustenance. So that's one op option as to what that spiritual food meant. It was food that gave spiritual sustenance. There are some other options as to what that phrase spiritual bread might mean. It could mean that the bread was not natural bread. Because since it came from heaven, it wasn't quite, didn't have the same molecular structure as our normal bread does. And as a matter of fact, it was something that people couldn't, had never seen before. They didn't know what it was. I don't think that's what it means. It's an idea. Some people say this is a reference to bread used in the Lord's Supper. Just as there was bread that came from heaven to feed the people in the Old Testament. Likewise, there's the bread in the Lord's Supper to feed the Christians in the New Testament. Nice, but I don't think so. It could mean that it's just a third option. It's just spiritual bread means that the bread was bestowed in a spiritual fashion. Its origin was spiritual. For example, we are sown a natural body, but we are raised a spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 15, the origin of our body is spiritual. It doesn't mean we're ghosts. It just means we have a spiritual origin. Or it could just mean that the physical matter gave spiritual sustenance. That's why it's spiritual food, because it gave us, it's encouraged us spiritually as well as physically. Well, I think those last two options are the best. The bread was bestowed in a supernatural fashion, therefore it was bread of the Spirit. 
food of the spirit, or it could mean that the food gave spiritual sustenance. I'll go with either one of those. I prefer the last one. All drank the same spiritual drink. Well, we have the same. Well, before we do that, let's look at how this bread from heaven theme is played out in the New Testament. John 6:31. Jesus is speaking. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That's bread from heaven. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then John 6:33, two verses later, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So just as that manna came down from heaven and gave life to the Israelites, so Jesus came down from heaven as the bread of life that gives life to anyone in the world who receives him and receives forgiveness for their sins. And in John 6:48, Jesus makes it explicit. He said, I am the bread of life. All right, so those those symbolism, the types and and metaphors are, and such are very clear here about spiritual food. Let's look at spiritual drink. This, as all commentators agree, is the water that came from the rocks. And it represented God's spiritual sustenance. And in other words, the physical water that came from the rocks spiritually fed the Israelites. Now, that's the easiest way to interpret that phrase, spiritual drink. Some other options are... The water was not natural water. Well, yes it was. It was H2O. That's not it. It could be a reference to the wine used in the Lord's Supper, and I don't believe that. Adam Alfred Barnes denies that, and but he mentions that a lot of commentators do believe that. I don't know why. I don't I don't see any reference to the wine of the Lord's Supper. For one thing is water, not wine, not 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 the fruit of the vine. Or it could be spiritual drink means water that was supplied of the spirit in a supernatural fashion. I can go with that. But I think the best answer is is that that physical water supplied the Israelites spiritually, and that's why it's called spiritual drink. Now, when did this happen? It happened twice in Israel's history. The first time it happened was right when they left. This was at Rephidim, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? And you know the story. They thirsted for water. They grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out here to get killed? And then the Lord said to Moses, strike the rock, or strike the Nile, excuse me. Excuse me. Strike the rock with which you struck the Nile. Strike the rock. The water will come out, and the people will drink. The places were called, this is near Mount Horeb, near Mount Sinai. The name of the place was called Masa, two, had two names, Masa and Meribah. Masa means temptation, Meribah means strife. That was the first place, Masa and Meribah near Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. That was the first time. It happened again, though, this was near the end of the journey, Numbers 22 through 11. There was no water for the community, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Now, this is at a place called Kadesh Barnea, where Miriam died. This is right before they were to go into the promised land after they had wandered for 39 years. So it happened twice and they were dying of thirst, and God supplied the water. So, yeah, that would be, spiritually, it would be something to, that would be a spiritual experience, a spiritual drink. 
How is that fulfilled in the New Testament? John 4, 13-14. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. This was at the Feast of Tabernacles and they had the water pouring ceremony. And Jesus is pointing to that. He said, You drink that natural water, you'll get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Now let's look at the third spiritual spiritual physical thing if you will in this verse spiritual rock for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ now what was this rock that followed them here's some options from barnes first the rock physically followed them the rock that moses struck that's absurd of course that's not it all right next option the water that flowed from the rock followed them actually and physically and so what you would be saying here is that Moses struck the rock, the water comes out, and the water that came from that rock followed them. And then you've got to say that rock was Christ because it was Christ who gave them the water. Now that seems far-fetched to me, but it's surprising there's a lot of commentators that hold to that. In fact, Albert Barnes says that this is indeed what Paul was referring to, the water that flowed from the rock followed the Israelites. John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned that as a possibility Albert Barnes actually affirms it. He said there must have been a large quantity of water to supply two million people, so the water kept flowing out of the rock at Mount Horeb, and Mount Horeb is up in the air, it's elevated, so water would have flowed from Mount Horeb down and flowed toward the Red Sea, which was to the south and east, or to the east, and then the Israelites would follow that water to remain supplied. Of course, that gets into the controversy over where was the route of the Exodus, and I really think this is a stretch. So the option that the spiritual rock that followed was referring to the water that flowed from the rock that followed them, I think is a, is far-fetched and not true. The other option is that it was Jesus following the Israelites and looking after them. Adam Clark holds to that view, and that makes perfect sense to me. The spiritual rock which followed them, that rock was Christ, and he's providing them with sustenance, life as he goes, and that's the metaphor there. So he was metaphorically a rock. He's metaphorically providing them with water. We go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now this most contrasts with the all in, that we've been emphasizing as we've gone through the first five verses, first four verses here. All of them had spiritual blessings, but God was not pleased with most of them. Now, that means that the sum of those all that God was pleased with, and that would, of course, probably refer to Jacob, uh, excuse me, Joshua and Caleb, who made it into the Promised Land. They were the only two people that were under the age of 20, that over the age of 20 that made it into the Promised Land. And so most of the Israelites were struck down. Now, John Gill says that there were other people that God was pleased with and who weren't struck down, but they died a natural death. He comes up with another category. For not God was not pleased with most of them. The ones that he weren't the ones that he was pleased with were Joshua and Caleb and some other unnamed Israelites who died a natural death and didn't make it into the promised land. I don't think so. I just think it's talk it's simpler to say it was Joshua and Caleb he was pleased with, but he's not pleased with most of them. Two million people he's well, it wasn't two million because if you were under twenty years old you did make it into the promised land. But it's a it's a ton of folks, let's put it that way. Lots and lots and lots of people God's been displeased with, and they all had the covenant blessings to start out with. And remember Paul's point is you Corinthians have got a lot of spiritual blessings. Don't blow it like the Israelites did. They were struck down in the wilderness. That means they died. 
We go now to verses 6 and 7 in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things, and of course the things that Paul is talking about is the Exodus things, the things that happened in the wilderness as the Jews were leaving Egypt. Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Now Paul is going to give two examples. This first one here is an example of idolatry. And later on in our passage, he's going to refer to the sins of sexual immorality, the two sins that the Corinthians were having the most trouble with. And so he starts out with idolatry. He says idolatry is an example for us. The NIV margin says a type, and that's sort of a, I don't know, a theological word. All, that's all a type is, is an example. The antitype is the fulfillment of the type in the New Testament. Now, 3,000 people died because of the Israelites' idolatry. He's going to refer to the golden calf incident, Exodus 32:28. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. I wonder about their wives, 3,000 men. How about their wives? I bet they were participating in the idolatry, too. It could have been they got killed, too. But we don't know. But at least 3,000 people got killed. That's a pretty bad example. Corinthians, you want to die like the Israelites did? They committed idolatry. You want to do that? Remember, Paul is upset. He's, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. And what he's talking about is you can't participate in these idol feasts, especially if it's going to make somebody stumble. But even if it's not going to do that, you can't do it. And so Paul points out the Old Testament example of people who decided they were going to participate in that fancy feast to the golden calf. 3,000 of them died. You want to be like the Israelites? You want to die? Exodus 32.6, referring to the golden, feast incident, golden calf incident. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, they, and then got up to play. So they were eating and drinking, feasting, as you did at Idol Feast just as you did at the Yahweh feast, actually. And then they got up to play. What did they mean by play? What did, what, what did Moses mean when they got up to play? Well, they got up to do idolatry, to, to prepare the animals and set them apart, to slay the animals, pour out the altar, pour out the blood on the altar, and then you dress the flesh so you can eat it. And then the priests and the offerers ate a, fee, ate, had, ate a feast together to show communion between them and their golden calf god that they were worshiping. Or get up to play could mean to do acts of immorality, temple prostitution type stuff, idolatrous sex, orgiastic sex going on going on with the feasting and reverie of the idolatrous Israelites. Well, whatever it was, it wasn't good. Notice that only some of the Israelites participated in the idolatry. They all died except for Joshua and Caleb, but only some of them did the idolatry. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, don't become adulterers as some of them were. That means that the rest of the Israelites suffered. They didn't die like the ones that were directly participating in the adultery, but it was a setback for the whole kingdom. And that just goes to show you're tied in with a church or you're tied in with a political party or a business or or a family. or you know, you, You're not just an individual. You're tied in with other associations. And if they screw up, they, it will affect you as an individual. That's the way life is. Paul here says, now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things. That desire is sort of a weak word. In Numbers 11:4, where it's the golden calf incident, excuse me, this is a different incident. Con contemptible people among them had strong craving for other food instead of desire. It's strong craving. King, King James has lust for other food. 
So this is what the Israelites were doing. Their lust were eating them up, and it destroyed them. And that's the number one thing a Christian's got to learn. you got to mortify the deeds of your flesh and kill your lust. You still want to love money? How many movies you seen with gigolos and gold diggers or business tycoons who spend their life looking for money, 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 and they all get destroyed? I've like to watch A&E biographies of captains of industry, the ones who weren't Christians, they were all destroyed. Their lives were miserable, absolutely miserable. Now, there were some Christians, I say, that did fine with their wealth. But if you don't have God and you make God your money, oh, my gosh. So anyway, they, they desired, they lusted after evil things. Now, when Paul mentions that the Israelites desired evil things and the Corinthians ought not to desire evil things, he doesn't mention what incident he's citing in the Old Testament, but John Gill and Adam Clark say he's citing Numbers 11.4. Contemptible, pe contemptible people among them had a strong craving, a lust, for other food. That's when they got tired of all the manna and all the quail and said, we want something else. We want the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlics of Egypt, as John Gill says. And so that's what Paul's referring to. They had a strong craving for other food, a lust for other food. And Israelites, maybe you better not, maybe you better control your desire for evil things. To worship foreign gods or to have sex with women. He doesn't mention food in particular here for, with the Corinthians. But that's, he's talking about the lust that the Corinthians had for food and it destroyed them. What was the penalty, by the way, for that lusting after the food besides the quail, the quail and the manna that God had provided them? Here's the punishment, Numbers 11:33 through 34. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people, and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named that place Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had craved the meat. The punishment was death. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, as the author of Hebrews says. This, of course, is an idea totally foreign to our culture and to the wussy puss evangelicals who never mentioned the judgment of God or hell, the wussy puss evangelicals who have conformed to the culture. They ought to read the Old Testament and see that God is not a God to be trifled with. And the Corinthians were trifling with him, with God. They were presuming upon his grace. We go to verse 8, 1 Corinthians 10. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Now Paul is moving from idolatry to sexual immorality, saying, Corinthians, don't do it, because here's an example in the Old Testament of people who did do it, and oh boy, were the results bad. 23,000 people died in one day. Pretty good example, pretty good type to teach us something. Now what is Paul referring to? He's referring to the act of Israel and joining herself to Baal of Peor. This was in Moab, as the NIV Study Bible says. And let me read you the scripture where this story is related. Numbers 25, 1 through 9. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. 
and Israelite man came bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. Phinehas caught the two in flagrante delicto, I'm sure. They were getting it on, and he stabs them both like a shish kebab. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped for those who died in the plague number 24,000. Now... The sexual relations with the women of Moab that the Israelites were engaged in, the NIV Study Bible says these were, these were prostitute virgins who worshipped the Baal. So this was temple prostitution, not just ordinary sex. Even if it wasn't, I can imagine this. The Israelites say, oh, look at all these pretty foreign women. Oh, look at their curves. Smell their sweet perfume. Look at their long flowing locks, their lifted eyelids, and their curvaceous lips. I think I'm going to go sin. Then once they did that, they said, well, you know, now i got to please my new girlfriend. And she wants to worship Baal. Maybe I ought to worship Baal, too. Because, you know, if you're going to be fornicating with women that aren't your wife, you're also going to forget God at the same time. One thing leads to another. Physical adultery leads to spiritual adultery pretty darn quick. Now we have one little problem here. Paul says that in a single day, 23,000 people feel, fell dead, but... Moses in Numbers 25.9 says those who died were 24,000, not 23,000. How do we reconcile this? There are no textual variants, by the way. The texts are very clear on this. Here are some options. Paul just rounded the number off. He just meant to speak approximately. The NIV Study Bible mentions this in Gil. I don't think so. I mean, the idea means the real number could have been 23,500. Moses rounded one way and Paul rounded the other. I don't believe that's the answer myself, in my humble opinion. It just doesn't sound right to me. Second option, Paul didn't say only 23,000 people said. He said 23,000 people fell, which was true because 24,000 people fell. And if 24,000 people fell, then 23,000 people fell also. But again, I don't like that either because it, it feels like you're kind of playing with it a little bit, you know. <laughs> Here's the best way to reconcile it, in my humble opinion. This is John Gill's idea. Moses is including about 1,000 people who were executed as, as leaders. Paul was not. These 1,000 leaders, of course, were executed by Phineas and his companion. companion. The idea is this. 23,000 fell by the plague. Paul mentions only those that fell in one day, as he says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10. 23,000 fell in a single day. That's the one day they died with a plague, and then Phineas and his companions executed another thousand on the next day. We can see that as we go back to Numbers 25, verse five, verses 4 and 5. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. Verse 5, So Moses took, told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. So that was a, the execution of a thousand. The other 23,000 was the plague. You add 23,000 plus 1,000, you end up with 24,000. And we don't have a problem in reconciliation. And so all the blasphemous liberals who love to say, oh, I love God, but I hate the scriptures. No, you've got to find something else to try to knock down the inerrancy of scripture. Now let's go to first let's let's point out how bad a problem sexual immorality was amongst the Corinthians. First Corinthians five one. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. 
A man is living with his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, more sexual immorality, or anyone practicing homosexuality, more sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 15, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. So, so far we've had what? Adultery, prostitution, homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And Paul's telling the Corinthians, don't do that. Last time that happened in the Old Testament, 24,000 people died. Don't do that. 1 Corinthians 10.9, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Ah, here's another Old Testament example. It comes from Numbers 21.5-6. through 6. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Now notice here that Moses said, the people spoke against God and Moses, but Paul says it was Christ who was tested, which shows that God and Christ are both God. They're different persons, same God, same nature, God, but different persons. Now we have a question here. Let us not test Christ. How did the Israelites test Christ when they complained about not having bread or water? Was Christ in the wilderness? Well, John Gill says that Christ was the angel that went before the Israelites in the Old Testament. Here's a quote. Christ was the angel that went before the Israelites in the wilderness, the angel of God's presence, that bore and carried and saved them. He is the Jehovah they tempted at Massa and Meribah and elsewhere, and God they spake against at this place referred to. Hence, it is clear that the Lord existed before his incarnation and that he is truly and properly God. The verse we just quoted in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 tends to show that. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus was there with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Adam Clark says this, quote, And this affords no mean proof that the person who is called Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament is called Christ in the New. So Jesus is in the Old Testament, folks. What does it mean to test Christ by complaining about the food? Adam Clark defines it this way, disbelieving the providence and goodness of God, presuming to prescribe to God how he should send them the necessary supplies. He's going to feed them with quail and with manna, and by golly, they're going to complain about it. Test means to aggravate, to provoke, like you, you, your kid starts screaming and hollering at you, you know, they, they test you, <laughs> they provoke you, they wear out your long-suffering. We go to verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 10. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now we have another New Testament incident. And then Paul is using that to say, Corinthians, don't complain about things. Ooh, we can all take that because everybody likes to complain. I remember here when I was studying Chinese, every student at some point would start groaning and moaning and complaining and just griping to death. I did it. I confess it. You'd have to be superhuman spiritually not to. The language is so awful. And the Chinese teachers learned to sit there and listen, you know, and then they'd say, you finished complaining yet? I remember I laughed when I heard that. I had one do that to me. I said, all right, <laughs> all right, won't complain anymore. So Paul says, 
There were some people in Israel that complained and were killed by the destroyer. Who was he referring to? He is referring to a passage around Numbers 16.41. The next day, the entire Israelite community complained about Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the Lord's people. This was after the rebellion of Coram, Dathan, and Abiram. That's a great story in the Old Testament. After which, their rebellion, God, Moses lined them all up at God's direction, and there was a big fault that opened up in the ground kind of like an earthquake, a splitting in the ground, and the whole family, their family, these, these guys' family fell into the, into the pit and died, and the 250 other people were burned up by fire from Jehovah in the aftermath of that rebellion. Ooh, that's a great object lesson, is it not? They come, but, well, no, that was an object lesson for rebellion. But then, after that, then the people rebelled at the God's punishment that God had done on the on Korah and Datham and Abiram and their families. They complained about it. Here's another example of the Israelites complaining. Numbers 14.1, Then the whole community broke into loud cries and the people wept that night. That's because the spies came back and said, There's giants in the land. You're never going to conquer the promised land. The Israelites were always complaining. I just gave you two examples. You could go on and on about that. Now, it says they were killed by the destroyer. When you first read that, you might think that they were killed immediately upon the times, immediately at the time that they complained, but that's not what it means. As Al, Albert Barnes points out, it means that they were killed by the destroyer before they made it to the promised land. In other words, they all died in the wilderness before they got there. They weren't killed immediately after each incident of complaint. Who is the destroyer? Well, he is the so-called angel of death. The Jews had a special name for him. Samuel or something, I forgot the name, but he, they had a special name for him. Albert Barnes says here that, quote, the destroyer here is understood by many to mean the angel of death, so often referred to in the Old Testament, the angel of death. For example, in Exodus 12:23, when the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. This was at the famous Passover feast, the first one. The destroyer would be the angel of death, God's ministering angel of death. Mentioned also in Hebrews 11:28, by faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. That's the angel of death. Here's another angel of death incident. This is after David chose a three-day a three-day plague to come on Jerusalem because he had improperly numbered the people against God's will. 2 Samuel 24:16. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, but the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. The angel of the Lord, of course, is probably Jesus. And the destroying angel was destroying the population of Israel. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the destroying angel. Second Timothy twenty four six Second Samuel twenty four sixteen. Now I assume that this is an angel, a ministering angel of God, who's sent out to execute justice. I, I don't ask me why God just doesn't do it directly. Does an angel instead? You know, he does it by an angel instead. Although I guess you could say the destroyer is God Himself because He destroyed people. We go to verse eleven and we'll shut this audio down. First Corinthians ten. Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's already used that word as examples in the I think it's the first verse of this section here, and now he mentions again examples. He also mentioned it in Romans fifteen four. 
For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. So not only were there negative examples in the Old Testament, there were positive examples, examples of faithfulness and endurance and God staying faithful to his covenant despite the sins of the people. Now, Paul mentions that the ends of the ages have come. This is sort of an incidental comment, but it's a little bit opaque to me, ends of the ages. Well, the NIV study Bible, well, actually the NIV translation says that it should be translated this way. It is translated this way according to, the, to them. They will, These examples were written as a warning to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, Moses was fulfilled by Jesus. NIV study Bible says when all that God had been doing in previous ages came to fruition in the Messiah. So, if you look at history, it's divided into pre-first coming of the Messiah and post-first coming of the Messiah. The end of the ages before the ages refers to the time, the period, the, the the epoch, if you will, the epochs, the periods of time before the Messiah, and the ends of the ages refers to the time after that first coming of the Messiah. So, as the NIV Study Bible says, the period of time that's that's referred to here is from the first coming all the way to the second coming. The ends of the ages is first coming to the second coming. Ages means all the previous ages before the first coming, and ends of the ages is all the ages after the first coming. Now, ages before the first coming is a little bit imprecise. John Gill says that Paul is specifically referring to the end of the Jewish age, or perhaps he's referring to the end of the age of Gentile darkness. Adam Clark agrees about the end of the Jewish ages. He says, quote, we are to consider the apostles' words as referring to the end of the Jewish dispensation and the commencement of the Christian dispensation. That's Adam Clark. James Foster Brown says this, ends of the ages refers to, quote, the New Testament dispensation in its successive phases, plural ends, being the winding up of all former ages. In other words, the ages had successive phases before the first coming of Christ and then their successive phases of the period after the first coming of Christ. Of course, they don't say what those successive phases are. And I'm not about to speculate on that. John Gill says that the reason that the ends of the ages is plural is because the New Testament dispensation has successive phases. But he doesn't tell us what those successive phases are. Adam Barnes says the phrase ends of the ages is equivalent to the last time, the latter day, which is used all the time in the scriptures. And by the way, it does not mean the time right before the second coming of Jesus. It might mean that. But most of the time it does not. It means the end of the Jewish age, the end of the old covenant dispensation, the old covenant I hate to use that word dispensation, the old covenant period of time. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. In our next audio, I'm going to cover verses 12 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul will continue his screed against sexual immorality and idolatry. He will mention the Lord's Supper in the context of that. We often read those verses about the Lord's Supper. We don't think about the context that it's in. It's about he's preaching against idolatry and sexual immorality. So we'll take that up next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you enjoy the next one too. 